0: Hi, you're listening to Go See a Show, New York City's independent theatre podcast. Sanguine Theatre Company returns to the podcast and, interestingly enough, it's with another play titled by a single name, in this case Alexandria, that once again imagines a world that may be right around the corner in the not-so-distant future. However, The similarities end there. Alexandria, written by Vince Gatton, was the play chosen for production by the company's Project Playwright program, and I got to catch a preview and speak with the playwright, director, and one of the designers. I'll let them introduce themselves, take a listen. I do like to start with everyone's name on the mic, so we'll start with the playwright. Let us know uh, what your name is. So we've got a voice with the name, and I'm gonna make you say the name of the play. Uh, I'm Vince Gatton, and I'm the playwright of Alexandria. And this is uh, Sanguine Theater Company, and we're back to uh, people's names for uh, names of shows, which is great. Uh, After the success of Jessica, I also have with me...
1: (laughs) Jordana Williams. And
0: Tyler M. Perry. And welcome back, Tyler. And Jordan, it's is this your first time on the podcast? I
1: can't... Like, maybe I did one once, but maybe not, right? Like, you're always talking to the other guys for yeah. some reason.
0: It's always like... Yeah, it's always I Team Gideon know. without you, which is so weird.
1: I got kids, so it's like, <laughs> like... You know, it's like I'm rehearsing, I'm rehearsing, and then the minute... I don't have to be there anymore. I have to be home.
0: I, this is why I was on my phone right after the show, because now I feel that as well. I was like, how's the kiddo doing, she right? Mm-hmm. So I totally feel you. That's great. Um, let's get to this show. Alexandria, what is Alexandria? How do you describe this show to people? This is my standard, because uh, you're new, Vince. Uh, you don't know this, okay. but my standard question to start the podcast is, what is the show? How do you pitch it to someone? If you are in an elevator and you said, like, I'm doing the show. It's at IRT this weekend. What are you
2: telling them to come and see? Wow, I'm a crap playwright that I don't have the elevator pitch ready to go. But um, it's set in a small town library in the deep south. And it is concerned mainly with the um, unlikely friendship of the two libraries who, librarians who work there. Uh, they are, uh, it's safe to say, of radically different political and religious b- bents. There's a, a big gap between them in that respect. But they have this tremendous personal bond and an affection. And... Um, plot circumstances test that friendship. Perfect setup for the politics of 2018. (laughs) Uh, All
0: I could think as I was watching this piece, well not all I could think but the metaphor that kept kind of running through my brain was this idea of uh, just water running down a drain. Uh, And it kept spiraling and spiraling in on itself until the point where I was like, ah, yep it's just going to keep going. So um, talk to me and Jordana about putting this together. Like, This is A very, and I say this in the best of ways, it's a very wordy play. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of talking, and we're in one location. And I was just grabbed right from the minute by these arguments that you've put out here. How do you do a show like that? Because that's some challenging stuff for a director
1: yeah um i mean i i, I like it uh, words are uh, my sort of my thing so i'm okay with that um and i for a play like this as long as people are talking they're trying they're trying to make a connection with each other and they're, they're trying to coexist um and i feel like this play asks a really timely question in a very compassionate sensitive way and that's like throughout my life i've always felt like um doing my best to understand people and make room for their beliefs was a like an unmitigated good. And then recent events have made me question that a little bit. And and, you know, at a certain point what you're tolerating is sort of what you're permitting and, um, and kind of where, where do you draw the line and, and what's okay and what stands should you take and when should you shut somebody down? Um, and I don't know the answer and it's something that I struggle with and I love how honestly the play grapples with that. So the talking is, is, is the trying and is the dilemma. So it's very active. I mean, I think words are only a problem if there isn't anything happening and there's a ton happening.
3: Where did
0: this come from for you? Because I don't hear that accent that's on stage from you. (laughs) Uh, Uh,
2: Is that uh, just kind of something that you've let aside? Marginally, because where I'm from is Louisville, Kentucky. Um, So I'm from Kentucky, but if you know Louisville, Louisville isn't like the rest of Kentucky. Um, Louisville is much more um, analogous to its nearest neighbor, Cincinnati. Um, It is, uh, and so growing up there, you only marginally identify as the South. Um, if you if you do it all, but then when you leave there, you recognize how much of you is infused with the South. Um, uh, a lot of this uh, where in terms of where it comes from has been you know the last decade of uh, of, of seeing how Christianity in America has had to grapple with the um advance of gay rights and particularly around marriage because that was such a specific galvanizing legal argument uh, and cultural argument for so long and how um, as the forces of gay rights were advancing um, how the Christian right in America has sort of splintered as, as it chose to, different factions would choose to fight it out, some did some self-reflection and rethought their position, some uh, were willing to do a sort of interesting stock-taking of how they have uh, their their cultural posture toward gay people even if their theological position didn't change, Um, and I found myself sort of eavesdropping on the internal arguments happening in Christian America, though I am not of that world, and the really impressive breadth of uh, of discussion and different positions that exist on the Christian right uh, about a lot of culture war issues. The, the amount of nuance that exists over there is something that I think a lot of left-leaning um, artist types in New York City who have uh, who are guys with husbands like I am don't necessarily perceive it that way. We perceive them sort of as a monolith mm-hmm. of of Jerry Falwell's running around. and. And there is a lot of um, there is a lot of complication and a lot of feeling that I have dis- that I that I know is genuine by a lot of people who really are struggling with this. Um, and a thing that really clicked that became a beginning point of the idea of this play is um, if you remember uh, the the very famous science fiction author Orson, Orson Scott Card. Uh, was a, sort of a flashpoint, has been a flashpoint in a lot of gay rights arguments because he, uh, he lives in North Carolina, he writes for various different publications, wrote a lot of essays arguing against the North Carolina marriage equality law, um, mm. arguing with a great deal of vehemence and passion against gay marriage passing in North Carolina. And frequently when those who are making those arguments, uh, there's a common tactic to mention that they have gay friends and very often that feels like a dodge. Orson Scott Card... One of his best friends, apparently, is the lesbian folk singer Janice Ian. Janice Ian wrote a deeply impassioned defense of her friend Orson Scott Card when all of that was going down and people were talking about boycotting Ender's Game. And I found the friendship between Orson Scott Card and Janice Ian to be a really interesting, how does that work, question. And and that, I think, was the grain of sand around which the relationship between two of the characters in this play that was where the the story began to form
0: from there it stands to reason that we would put this in a library that's really great um there's uh this one location that's going on here and uh tyler has brilliantly brought in a small town library uh literally on stage and one of the things that i love about your designs uh in general tyler is that you always seem to like be almost like hyper realistic while also being like profoundly theatrical uh and that ba- that balance is actually beautiful to see all the time uh talk to me about putting this uh putting this together because this is uh, there's a lot going on in terms of like cues for those of us I mean like look at the books and uh when you come in audience and you'll you'll kind of have a sense of where this play might be going—that's the this is the most spoiler I'm going to get here. Um, yes. <laughs> the uh, yeah, I always avoid spoilers for the best. <laughs> but it's like yeah. yeah, I mean that really got my brain going, and so when things started to happen throughout the play, it's like ah, brilliant choices, brilliant choices. So just talk to me about those choices and and, and what it was like for you. Brand new play. Uh, is this your first collaboration between yeah, you two? Yeah, yeah, working with a new director. Talk to me about
3: that. Absolutely. Yeah, it, the play obviously has a lot of metaphor and imagery pressed into it even from its title. So uh, we knew we wanted to make a library that was sort of a haven in every sense of the word and how that can evolve. Um, so, So definitely having some theatricality to it gave us, gives us permission to do what we need to do and the things we need to ultimately get out of it besides library. And pressing in some of the other imagery, obviously books and technology and its relationship with books and windows is an image in the play Mm -hmm. and and even which books get presented. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I
1: remember when we were first talking about it um the like one sort of like the one thing that I really cared about is that I wanted the library to look not very highly resourced, but very much cared for. Mm. So I wanted it to look like it wasn't an expensive building, they didn't have like a huge budget to work with, but that the people who worked there took care of this place and added as many personal Flourishes as they could and I think yeah. that really comes through and that adds the sense of character like that's how you learn about the town That's how you learn about the people who work there. So there are handmade signs and things and like and and, and so that's that's what tells you who these librarians are yeah.
0: It's uh, part of uh, the other thing that I really like about this is that real sense of tension between the analog and the digital that's also like super present not only in the uh, the design but it's reflecting what's in the scripts. Um, can I, I don't know like, if I have a question so much as like talk to me a little bit about what that that tension is for you in putting together a piece of live theater uh, which you know does have this uh, especially in an age where so much could be received by these characters on their phones so much could be done with um, computer screens we see one computer screen and We're rarely on our phones throughout the course of the show. Uh, Just talk to me about that.
1: I have one core thought about that, Um, and I think one of the most influential plot decisions that Vince made is that the young character, the 16-year-old, his phone is lost from the beginning of the play, and that, I think, is the character who would have interacted most regularly and in densely and passionately with his phone had it been there so I think that actually that one thing changes the play a great deal
3: I think that the one thing that I latched on when I was reading the play at first was uh, the moment the computers lock up and we need to figure out what's happening it takes everybody a second to realize, we're
2: in a room full of books. We can look at these. These might help us. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, all of that. And I, I mean, part of the, the fact that young Monte's phone has been stolen or broken um, keeps him in the room. You know not just physically not just physically present but also just it makes him have to be present with all of these grown-ups when every 16 year old in the position he is in would be absolutely somewhere else but he can get at least onto the internet on this clunky you know desktop by going into the library um, and it forces Monte into the room in a way I think you know in, in a re- realistically in his circumstance he would be here. Um. I'm gonna press this question, and if it
0: totally goes the wrong way, I'll cut it. I love it. But you just kind of really opened up this great uh, idea here in talking about this again, like by taking it with a phone, it puts him in the room. Uh, we want 16-year-olds in our rooms. We want them in our theaters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how do we give? What what is to the three of you? What is the the delicious? Uh, what was it? Fennel mango salad mm-hmm. or whatever that we're gonna be offering these folks to get them into <coughs> our room? When these digital uh, devices are, are so appealing,
1: I mean, I think you get them there once, um, and and that that once is really pivotal um, because if they're if they're bored or there doesn't seem to be anything to offer them, or um, the, the piece of theater is sort of presented as if from a great distance, um, then they they don't feel uh, they don't. Get it. Um, so I actually think that indie theater like this is a great first um, theater experience for a kid. I mean, like my kids' first shows were small shows, and that sense of participation, even if it's not like a literal audience participation, that sense of my presence here has changed the room, even if they're not thinking that um, in, in literal terms. Uh, I think that matters, and that that's made them into theater goers. I mean, I my. My oldest has seen a couple of Broadway shows now, the youngest has not yet, Um, but she's been to a bunch of plays. I think there's
2: something that is very um, sort of lower brainstem part of us responds to sitting around the campfire telling a story. And, um, (coughs) excuse me, Um, so curating what the first campfire story is that they hear uh, matters because if you tell a dud they're gonna be like campfire stories are awful right <laughs> but 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 I think we have more of a um more of a built-in advantage there than we think I mean the devices are uh flashy and interesting and eye-catching and and we have design we had design challenges in tech about what would happen on the computer screen you know because we also do yes our eyes go to the flashy mm-hmm. flashy thing but I do think there is a you know that's sort of like a uh, tr- treble note up there that goes like r- rings up there really brightly and and catches our eye. But I do think there's a bass note in us that likes to just sit and be told a story, and that that is an inherently communal experience. And I mean, nobody loves their movies or or Netflix like as much more than I do. But there is something <laughs> different about that experience of sitting there with a group of people while somebody or a group of people tell you a story and I think that is visceral and I think um, I think the thing is the the live nature of it is something that can't be replicated
3: and I think in this play in particular that base note. like if, if we if we need only one thing it's human connection and that's sort of kind of where this play goes in, in some ways like can't say much more than that. <laughs> well, that's good,
2: and it, you know, and and to looping that back to jo- jo- Jordana's earlier answer about um, about dialogue-heavy uh, that that all of these big these characters who are big talkers um, are trying very much to accomplish something with what they're saying. They are not. Um, they are not delivering an essay by Vince Gatton about how the world should be. <laughs> um, they, uh, have very strong points of view and it's, and and only at certain times are they actually like making the case for their point of view. Often what they're trying to do is give a gift to the other person. Um, I think I was, you know, there's always something for the, the three central big talkers of this play. Um, one thing that is true of all of them is there is something they are always trying there is a gift of love for one or the other of the other two when the three of them talk like there's a lot of there's a lot of gift giving that they are just and the gift they give is the idea that they're expressing in words, and, um, and and I
1: some people aren't great at picking out gifts for other people. Exactly, <laughs> um, you know. Yes, that's such <laughs> a great. Oh, about it. that relative who, um, you know, sometimes people shop for their own personal taste rather than for the taste of the person they're buying for, and they don't even realize they're doing it. Right. Um,
2: and if I can go back to the sort of like that that core relationship and that uh, uh, that central friendship. Is you know here's this gift that is not appropriate, but I really labored over it and I love Mm -hmm. it and I really worked hard on this because I love you so much. Um,
1: And then the other person has the burden of saying, okay, so I can't throw this away because he's going to come here and he's going to look for it. So how do I make room for it in my house? And
2: Uh, also chicken and quinoa. But also the sense of. I love you for the lame, wrong gift you picked out for me because I see how much you put into it, and I love you for that, even though I don't like the gift. Like, I think that's the thing about about these two, is they... The love they have for each other is very real, and they have maintained this uh, long-term friendship by avoiding the landmines, right. by avoiding the sand traps and the pitfalls. And... Um, that's one way to keep the friendship intact, but it means you are prioritizing that friendship over other things. And, um, and so elements of plot are designed to sort of make it harder for them to, to steer around those landmines and, and see also, what happens.
1: Those landmines don't shrink over time. I mean, if you, if you think about political differences, and a, a family holiday, for instance, there are fewer and fewer topics of conversation that are safe anymore. I mean, you, the joke is like you talk about the weather when there's nothing else to say. You can't talk about the weather when half the table doesn't believe that there are things causing the climate to change. You know what I mean? So <laughs> it's like the so, so it's like <laughs> it's like they're on this island and the sea level keeps rising and there's just less and less territory for them to inhabit.
0: It was interesting to watch one of the characters kind of keep justifying that eroding shoreline. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was actually really phenomenal to watch uh, and felt very real. Um, Well, I think we've given a good, like, tantalizing bit of, like, what's going on here? And I'm glad I will not have to cut out that question because y'all with that so definitely. Oh, <laughs> thank you. My like, you know, random like, talk about things <laughs> that I just like, throw into the room. Uh, Brilliant work, all of you. Uh, the show runs through when?
1: August 18th. Yes.
0: Tickets and more information
3: can be found at? SanguineNYC.org Brilliant.
0: Thank you all so much for doing this. Thank and you uh, break me. lives thank on rest to the room. Thank yeah. you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you, Vince, Jordana, and Tyler, for hanging out after the show to chat. You can catch Alexandria at the IRT Theater, 154 Christopher Street, number 3B, in Manhattan through August 18th, 2018. Head to sanguinnyc.org for a link to tickets and more information. Thanks to you for listening into the podcast. If you dig it, please like it on Facebook, facebook.com slash go see a show. Follow at go see a show on Twitter and rate and or comment on the show's Apple Podcasts page. My name is Robert A.K. Gagno. You can find me on the internet at robert G-O-N-Y-O dot Until next time, go see a show.
2: That was a fun chat. Yeah, <laughs> delightful. That's all I can go
0: for. <laughs>